The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So I'm still learning about copywriting issues. I was hoping to show a video for you all, but... Um, Apparently, YouTube has some things to say about that, so I respect that, but I am able to show this picture up here, and this, uh, this picture is from uh, an ad that Nike ran uh, during the 2012 Olympics, which for me feels like yesterday, and I'm starting to date myself because I was thinking, that, geez, that was like almost a decade ago, and yet it feels like I just watched this yesterday. Um, so this, this ad features... A lot of people doing a lot of different things. And Nike is making a claim in this ad. They say, they say, greatness, greatness is not for the chosen few. It's not for those tiny minority of elite people. It's for each one of us. Each one of us can, f- can look inside ourselves and find our greatness. This picture shows us a 12-year-old boy jumping off the highest platform of uh, a diving tower as a picture of that. This is Nike's mantra, find your greatness and live it. And our culture, our world glorifies this. The people that are on the top, the people that, that we give honor and recognition, the people that we celebrate are people who embody this vision of greatness, who are able to look inside themselves, see the greatness in themselves, and live it out in the world. Andy Crouch is a Christian author, and he talks about glory as being public worth, as being the things that we honor the most— that we give recognition to the most, that we adore, that we make the center of our attention. But what Nike doesn't tell us in this ad is that what we glorify, so what we give the center of our attention, what we search for and long for, has the power to make us or break us. They present greatness as being completely neutral, something that each one of us can find, that it doesn't matter where you find it, and it gives us this image, but that's not exactly true. I love the, the quote in the movie Amadeus, uh, by the, the, which tells a story of two different composers, right? Mozart's and Salieri, and Salieri is, is, is a, a man who struggles with mediocrity. And he says this at one point, he says, um, He says, I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am the patron saint. Mediocrities everywhere. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. He's fighting this idea of being ordinary, of not being great, when he sees himself with being compared with Mozart. For Salieri, that Nike mantra does not work, right? Find your greatness. He's trying. He's trying hard, and he can't do it. He continues in another scene, talking about God, and that's where this quote comes in. It says, Your merciful God, he destroyed his own beloved, 
rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory. He killed Mozart and kept me alive to torture. 32 years of torture, 32 years of slowly watching myself become extinct. My music growing fainter, all the fainter, till no one plays it at all. And he's right. Who talks about Salieri? None of us. We talk about Mozart. When he compared his own music to the glory of Salieri, or the glory of Mozart's, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't reconcile himself. This is why the way that the Bible talks about greatness and glory is so astounding and so important. So throughout Lent, we've been seeing the radical nature of the way that God calls us to live, or the, the kingdom of God. Right? It changes the way we see winning. It changes how we see all, every part of our lives. And, and it, it is constantly with Jesus inviting us into a relationship with him and challenging us to rethink every part of our lives. It's a, it's a call to be with him and to change. And today we see that the way Bible talks about glory and greatness flies the opposite of Nike and flies the opposite of the way Salieri was thinking too. Jesus tells us that the only person that is truly great is him, himself, Jesus Christ. And when we glorify him, he, and when we make him the center of our lives, he invites us to participate in his glory. He gives us his glory. He, he, he humbled himself so that he could lift us up. In this passage, Jesus talks about the glory of God, and, and I think it's one of the key verses in, in John's whole gospel, verse 23, where Jesus says, finally, the hour has come. Right, throughout the whole gospel, it's, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, and finally we get to the place where Jesus says, my hour has come. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Everything, I think, in the Gospel of John could be summed up in the Father glorifying his name through the person of Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. I already mentioned Andy Crouch, who talks about glory as what we give honor and recognition to and what we make the center of attention in our lives. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink takes this a step further and describes the glory of God not just glory, but the glory of God. And he says that the glory of God is the infinite and indescribable perfection and beauty of all of God's attributes. It is the infinite and indescribable perfection and beauty of, of God's character, of who he is. It's like the syrup that gets soaked into your Sunday morning pancakes, right? That's the, the glory of God that saturates every single part of God's character and identity. It is beautiful. It is glorious. We are attracted to beauty, and I think this is wise because God is a glorious God. He has a beautiful and perfect character, and so we are attracted to, to that. Think of, you know, a beautiful piece of art, or a perfectly thrown fastball, or, or seeing justice in the world. You know, we know beauty because the Bible tells us that we are created in the image of a God who is beautiful. He's glorious. 
This is why we grieve and lament and, and want to change things and want to work for a better world when we hear about the, the um, things that happened in Atlanta this week. That's a natural response because we're created in the image of a glorious God. God's character is indescribably perfect and we are made for him. But the cool thing is that we weren't just made for him, we were made actually to participate in his glory. Think about this. Think about, um, you know, it's one thing to hear your favorite musician live, right? To go to a a concert pre-COVID and to hear your favorite musician live. That's, That's an amazing experience, but it would be another thing to actually get up on stage and play that music with them. It's a whole different level. If I could get the next slide up there, Ian. This is a picture of, uh, that hangs above my couch. And it's a picture that I took when Tracy and I, a few years ago, were, were um, hiking through the Alps in France. And I think it's a beautiful picture. <laughs> but I took it, so I'm a little bit, um, yeah, jaded by that maybe. But anyway, it's a picture that hangs above our couch and, and you, you can see that there's, there's beautiful mountains and there's waterfalls and it's a, it's a beautiful gorge and, and we are attracted to the beauty of this, this photo. But, but there's a difference because when I look at that photo, I remember what it was like to be there. I remember what it was like to take one foot in front of the other and walk up that gorge. Right, to take in that panoramic view that extends beyond that picture and goes, you know, on forever and ever in a 360 view. Right? I have participated in the glory that I experience only when I see this picture, and it's so much better. And because it's one thing to see glory, it's another thing to participate in it. And we want to participate in glory. And this is the gospel. Jesus came to show us God's glory, the beauty of his character. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of where that takes place. And you know where that is? It's when his hour has come and when he turns to Jerusalem and he goes to the cross. That's where God's glory starts to shine through. And we see the picture and we're invited to participate in it. It's a different vision of glory and greatness than what Nike puts in front of us. I read an article this week that was talking about God's glory in the crucifixion, and it went like this. Why was the crucifixion a moment of glory for the Son of God? I mean, someone dying on a tree. That's not glory. I mean, what if if, Nike had no pictures of that in their commercial? Find your greatness? That's not great. But yes, the Bible says it is great, and it is glorious. Why? Because Christ's death reveals the glorious character of our Creator. We see at Calvary the manifestation of God's justice as Christ bears the curse that we sinners deserve for our transgressions. On the cross, we witness the almighty power of God. Our greatest enemy, death, could not hold Christ. He rose again, conquering death. Again, the cross shows us the supreme wisdom of God in using what the world sees as despised and foolish as a means of its defeat. 
the crucifixion reveals the great love of God. For it is God himself in the person of Jesus who bears the curse that we deserve so that we could be reconciled with him and renewed. It shows us the forgiveness of God who absorbs our sin in himself and lovingly pays the price so that we may go free. It's there. The character of God on display for all of us to see in its clearest picture, the cross. This is how we can make sense of Christ's call that we not try to save our lives but lose it, to follow him to the cross because that's where we become the most glorious reflectors of the image of God. This idea of greatness in the cross, God's glory in the cross, flips the values of the world. Right, throughout Jesus' life, we constantly are seeing that, that he is, is living life under a different metric than most of us do. Right? It isn't the insiders who participate in God's kingdom, it's the outsiders. It isn't the rich that Jesus goes to, it's the poor. It isn't the, the, the perfect people, it's, it's the sinners. It's not those who think they've arrived spiritually, it's the seekers. That's the trigger for Jesus. You know, what, what, if throughout this whole gospel, Jesus has been, been saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. What's the trigger? It's when the Greeks come to him. It's so fascinating. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And then he says, I got to go to Jerusalem. And his disciples say to him, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die because the, the religious leaders there hate you. And he says, yes, that's exactly what I need to do. And he goes to Jerusalem. And then the Greeks come to him and he says, now is the time. It's when the religious elites are trying to kill him and when the outsiders are coming to him that Jesus goes to the cross. Because the, the kingdom of God flips the values of the world on its head. Henry Nouwen, the Christian author, uh, puts it like this. He says, um, in a strange way, the spiritual life isn't useful or successful. It's meant to be fruitful. And fruitfulness comes out of brokenness. And I think he's right on. Or what's the most fruitful thing that's ever happened in this world? When Christ's body was broken for us. And so I think we will never, as a church, be able to participate in, in reflecting God's selfless love and, and his, his glorious character unless we see ourselves, like Henry Nouwen says, as broken, as spiritual outsiders, as people, as people who are hopeless without his grace and dangerous without his law. You know, but too often our gaze gets caught in chasing our own beauty instead of getting lost in his and i don't know about you but i often you know looking back on on things in hindsight more often i see myself as one of those seagulls in finding nemo i know dating myself again but the the seagulls that are so you know um often characterized you know the mind 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 just thinking about themselves and i i look back on times and i I see how much I chase after my own glory and beauty rather than looking at him. 
I need more John the Baptist in my life, right? He's the one who is such a great example of reflecting the glory of God, pointing to him, right? The people come to him and they say, are you the one? And he says, no. How many of us would have, you know, said, yes, look at me. John says, no, I'm not the one. He's the one. I am the messenger. I must decrease. He must increase. And look at the fruitfulness that came out of John. Again, the humility when, John, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John says to him, I can't, I need to be baptized by you. But here's the amazing news of the gospel is that, you know, we all can act like glory vacuums. Okay, looking for affirmation in ourselves, pu- putting ourselves out and saying, look at me, look at how awesome I am. G- give me the recognition. But the gospel actually takes the pressure off. Because when we become glory vacuums, we actually become reliant on other people to affirm us, to recognize us, to praise us. And that creates a tremendous amount of pressure to be great, to continue to be great, to be perfect, to continue to be perfect, to be the best, to continue to be the best. You know, like, some of us probably feel a lot of expectation to have a certain GPA or get certain grades in school or to have a certain number of followers or be a certain type of mom or dad or be a certain type of success in our career in order to feel okay with us. And when we don't live up to that self-imposed glory, then it crushes us with the weight of guilt and shame. That find your greatness mantra will lead us to constantly ask ourselves the question, am I great enough? How do I know? But remember the cross. God glorified him. It's not about us. It's about him. And then when it becomes about him, then he glorifies us. Right? We are united with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, in our own baptism. And we are invited to Share, participate in his glory. The cross flips the values of the world upside down and ends, us, ends up leaving us lighter on our feet as a result, right? More empowered to be impactful in the world. I think if I were to edit that Nike ad, I'd, I'd say, you know, see his greatness. Right? Glorify his name. And his glory will become our glory. We will become heirs with Christ. It frees us not to think less of ourselves, not to push ourselves down, but to, to think more about him, to think about ourselves less, and to care about reflecting God's character in everything that we do. You know, Salieri was wrong in that quote I said at the beginning, where he was battling, he was battling against being an ordinary person when compared to Mozart. You know, Jesus is the glory of God, and he is so radically ordinary, isn't he? There's no hint of exceptionalism in him, and, and, yet, and yet he is the most glorious person that ever walked this earth. This means for us that, that ordinary people doing ordinary things, wrestling with ordinary brokenness, 
are invited to participate in the glorious character of God in every single thing that we do. That's what, when we get lost in reflecting God's glory in the ordinary parts of our lives, that's where fruitfulness, like now and takes place. Fruitfulness is, is, is in the nitty-gritty. It's in the day-to-day ordinary stuff, right? It's, it's living in friendship with others that we can iron sharpen iron become more like Christ. It's, it's providing clean clothes for our kiddos, right? That, that we reflect the provision that God has, has given us. It's when we lament and grieve with people all over the world of the murder of eight people in Atlanta that we reflect the Father's heart. When we reject racism and fight for justice that we reflect God's glorious character. And when we forgive those people who have wronged us, as hard as it is, we reflect God's character in making beautiful art, in making sturdy building, in balancing budgets, right? Our invitation is to constantly reflect God's glory, his perfect character, and that takes place where we are already. Where is God inviting me to reflect his glory? It's in the table in front of us right now where we eat ordinary bread and ordinary juice and it becomes for us the glorious body and blood of our lord jesus christ not because of anything that we've done but because of him he invites us to come and receive come recognizing your need for this your need for grace and nourishment for glory that we can't find in ourselves God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And it's through the bread and the cup that he satisfies us. We die to ourselves walking to this table. We empty ourselves of ourselves so that we can make room for him, for the bread of life, and walk away full, nourished, satisfied, and renewed. So let's come to the table together and pray. Father, thank you for this glorious table in front of us where you have taken ordinary things, bread and juice and made them for us, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we are ordinary people, we, we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit that, that we may reflect the glory of your name in all of the earth by what we say, how we talk to our friends, our spouse, our kids, by what we do with our day-to-day lives. Father, forgive us when we stray away from this, when we get caught up in reflecting our own glory, looking for greatness in what we can do. Father, satisfy our hearts in knowing that you have loved us from eternity past and will love us forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.